and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're continuing the book The Wind Calls the Tune by Stanley Smith and Charles Violet. We're on the fifth part of the reading and we're on chapter six. Now, if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. And there for five dollars a month, you can not only support the podcast, but also get access to exclusive Patreon only book readings. Now on with the story. Chapter 6. Disabled. The evening of the 11th of June saw the commencement of a peculiar spell of weather which neither of us had ever experienced before. The murk of the previous day cleared away and the barometer climbed cheerfully upwards to 29.6 inches and then gradually to 29.8 inches. As the sun sank down from a beautiful clear blue sky, suffused with a deepening purple in the east, the wind began to increase, and before long we began shortening sail again. By midnight all sails were lowered except the mizzen. We felt very bitter about this, for we had visualised a prospect of a few days' pleasant sailing. The sunset and the rising glass clearly promised us that. Yet here we were, all sailed down and busy unravelling the sea anchor warp again. The wind settled down to blow from due west, as if malignantly intent on forcing us back squarely over the hard-earned miles we had gained. It was the kind of frustration that might put a severe test on the friendship of two men at close quarters in so small a boat, existing under such conditions with little to distract them from the discomfort. We had started off on our journey filled with a strong determination to give the lie to those who told us we would be the fiercest enemies long before we reached New York. One of the stricter rules we laid down for ourselves to avoid friction was that on no occasion were we actually to swear at each other, even in a jocular manner. Also, neither of us must ever swear at the boat. Now this sounds silly, but proved very wise A resentful, exasperated person turns viciously upon any unlikely excuse for offence. We each, therefore, had a companion and an area twenty feet long by six feet wide at which we were not to direct strong language, but around us lay the boundless expanse of sea and sky. On the elements, we had complete freedom to express our feelings to the limit of our resources, and we proceeded to exercise our freedom. Long before dawn, the seas began to build up into large hills. With ever-increasing signs of ill-humour, the tops curled over in roaring cascades of blue phosphorescent fire. Every now and again, the Nova Sparrow was dashed from stem to stern by cold, swirling flurries of this eerie glow. Along to the southward, between the mounting slopes of the black valleys, We caught occasional glimpses of Scorpio, in our view the most truly pictorial of all constellations, diving serenely westward towards the far South Pacific. Above us, silently ripping into the deep velvet of the Earth's upper atmosphere, handfuls of refuse from outer space exploded brilliantly into floating dust. The faint radiance of the starred Milky Way swung majestically westward, with not one microscopic glitter out of place. How miserable and small we felt as we watched the seas climb higher and higher and heard the relentless whine of the wind in the rigging. 
a mournful whistle as we wallowed in a trough, rising to a scream as we breasted the summit of a sea. Smaller seas fell and climbed about the backs of their big parents, with each roll and pitch among these the lands of each plank of the Nova Espero smacked down with resounding force, sounding rather like sharp strokes of a stick along a board fence. We could hardly hear each other speak inside the cabin, and the clatter of loose cans in the bilge, a reward for our recent lazy lack of method when taking out supplies, irritated us beyond measure. We would normally have lifted up the bunk mattresses and the locker hatches beneath to wedge the provisions into place, but in conditions such as these, a heavy lassitude was induced in us, and it was difficult to muster up enough energy to deal with anything not vitally important. The sky paled in the east, and presently a soft tinge of orange arched up from the horizon, gradually brightened into gold, and then the sun swept up into view, revealing a scene so magnificent we shall never forget it. Immense blue hills advanced rank upon rank, everywhere dazzling white crests curled over the huge bottle green and turquoise waves. Glittering spray shot skyward, disintegrated into fine mist and formed into scraps of rainbow before being swiftly borne downwind as spindrift. As the day progressed, the seas got even bigger until during the afternoon they towered considerably higher than our mast. It is very difficult to judge the height of heavy seas from a small boat because there are no familiar objects nearby with which to compare them. We think that we are being conservative when we say about 35 feet and that some of the peaks were possibly more than 40. To us, they looked simply stupendous for each represented a heap of ocean millions of tons weight moving at a speed of about 25 knots. The Nova Espero is not much affected by such seas. It is the little ones on the big ones' backs that throw her viciously in all directions. Also, the occasional breaking top buried her, often completely under boiling white water. Some curled over and fell sheer onto us from great heights, with tremendous blows which worried us in spite of the great care we took with the structure of the cabin. Heavier blows came later, however, and examination at the end of the voyage revealed no sign of weakness anywhere. Another night passed, similar to the first. Then towards dawn, we noticed, after a blow from a somewhat more severe breaker, a peculiarly ominous thumping in the bottom of the cockpit. Then we became aware that the boat had turned broadside to the advancing seas, and the motion became so violent and uncontrolled that we knew something was seriously wrong. We struggled out into the cockpit to investigate. Our first thought was that we might have carried away the sea anchor, so with growing apprehension, one of us went forward. With the boat plunging and rolling, this would be a difficult task, but it was accomplished by crawling on all fours over the bucking cabin top and then along the foredeck, which was covered by flying spray and often completely submerged in the seas. A tug on the sea anchor warp showed that all was well, except that the warp fell off to port far more than usual, so the cause of the trouble lay elsewhere. While this was going on, the other man took the helm and tried to bring the boat back head to sea. It was then that we discovered the catastrophe. 
The steering gear was damaged. The tiller moved too freely and was evidently useless. A shout above the din brought the soaking wretch up forward aft to the cockpit again. One of us scrambled out of the way into the cabin to give the other room to curl down into the bottom of the cockpit to investigate the trouble. The electric torch was handed out. We at first thought a small bolt holding the tiller fitting to the rudder shaft had sheared off. If so, it was something we could easily fix. Closer examination proved us wrong. With alarm, we began to realise the appalling situation in which we were placed. Something had carried away underneath the hull of the boat, where it might be irreparable. If so, we were in a terrible fix. The nearest land was at the Azores, nearly 400 miles dead to windward, and we had no rudder. However, there was a more urgent problem. If we continued to wallow, disabled in these huge seas, more damage must quickly follow. The mainmast should be snatched off the deck, for the stays could not long sustain the violent motion from side to side, and also the danger of being smashed in by a heavy breaker and swamped was imminent. The desperate need was to get the boat head on to the waves. We hastened to get a spare length of warp and bent it on the end of the sea anchor line to increase the drag. Then we had to get the mizzen as flat as possible to make it more efficient as a weather cocking influence. The mizzen mast had no forestay and it needed this extra support so we let go the halyard and made it fast forward before bowsing down on the mizzen sheet for all we were worth. This helped and the little boat rowed a little closer to the seas. When it was light enough to see properly, we hung over the side and took a look down through the water to see what damage had been done to the rudder. All we could see, however, was that its trailing edge was jammed athwartships against the bottom of the boat. We endeavoured to clear it and to get it amidships by passing lines under the hull, but without success. For the time being, however, the adjustments to the sea anchor and the mizzen seemed to have staved off disaster. We thought Nova Espero appeared to be riding more easily, but our optimism was of short duration, for it was followed by an experience such as will live in our memories for all time. We were lying on our bunks below trying to decide on our course of action. The wind seemed, if anything, to have increased and had backed a little to the southwest. The seas now tumbled more heavily and heaped up in stupendous confusion. When we looked out of the little portholes, we saw only the blue sky above or a foaming valley stretching away below us as we pitched for a moment across the backbone of some huge monster of a sea. But there was nothing we could do, so we turned back to continue a shouted conversation above the noise. Suddenly, in a weird hush, we heard a slight warning hiss high above the boat, the cabin darkened. The sequence of events during the next few moments will forever remain unknown to us. We remember only a fantastic roar and a deafening, stunning bang. Charles was hurled out of his bunk on the port side into the cabin roof opposite, together with the radio and a mass of loose clothing, cans and bedding. Everything went dark as night and water seemed to fill the cabin we remember thinking only, this must be the end, when we found ourselves in a heap in the starboard berth. A second later, with a loud sucking noise and another tremendous bang, we saw light again. We watched the water fall down from the cabin roof, drenching everything. 
we heard it swilling about heavily from side to side. The little boat had righted and resumed the old familiar dance on the surface of the sea. Slowly, we sorted ourselves out, and in stupefied amazement, shaking violently with shock, scrambled out into the open cockpit. We imagined everything, masts, sails and gear would certainly be gone, and we could hardly believe our eyes when we saw everything dripping but in place. It is not easy to reconstruct exactly what happened. This is what we think. In an ocean gale, there are always individual seas bigger and less stable than their fellows. They are sometimes called freak waves, built up to huge dimensions by some peculiar combination of wind and sea. They are the ones which get out of step and pile up high above the confusion until with a tumult of breaking foam, they burst and woe betide any luckless victim in their path. The Nova Espero was the victim this time, and the sketch below gives an impressionistic picture of the wave a fraction of a second before it descended upon us. To cause the darkening in the cabin before we were actually struck, the top must have formed an arch over us, thus shutting out the light. A moment later, swept along under the curl of the breaker, we were turned almost over. That we were flung into the cabin roof bears out our belief that we were capsized to such an extent that the masthead was carried down beneath us to within a few degrees of vertical. There she must have paused until the weight of the keel restored equilibrium and she suddenly snapped back the way she went over. Probably if she had rolled completely over and came up the other way, we would have found less water inside when we bobbed up afterwards, as the opening where water could enter the cabin was the partially open hatchway. If there had been a smoothly continued rollover, there would have been no pause, went upside down to allow the water to enter as it did. The Nova Espero has narrowly escaped destruction several times in her short life, but how she survived this punishment and came through unscathed, we cannot imagine. We do not like to think what would have happened if another hideous wave had followed the first. Nevertheless, after that great wave, the worst was over. It still blew a gale and the seas were high, but they did not seem quite so dangerous. To our intense chagrin, the direction of the wind held in the west, driving us steadily back to the eastward. The sun smiled benignly out of a clear, soft blue sky, and when yet another night came, the stars swung serenely over our heads while we glowered with frustration, for we could do nothing toward repairing the rudder until the sea subsided. We passed the anxious waiting period, considering schemes for making a new jury rudder, in the event of our being unable to repair the damage underwater. The morning of the 13th of June showed signs of improvement. The wind lowered its voice and the seas began to moderate. By one o'clock, we began work on a new rudder, as it was clear that we could do nothing with the old one, which seemed to be loose on its shaft and wobbling under the hull. If we could get the Nova sailing again, the forward motion would release the rudder, bringing it back with its trailing edge aft. Though loose as it was, it would swing from side to side under the hull, with every pitch or roll of the boat. Drifting slowly stern first while lying to the sea anchor, the rudder jammed hard over a thwartships, and it was this that put the boat in the dangerous position of beam to the seas. 
we needed two strong eyes to screw into the transom and two hooks to go into them so that the new rudder, if we could manufacture one, could hinge on them. The only screw eyes on board were those on the canvas bunk lee boards in the cabin. We took these off but came up against an unexpected difficulty when we tried to screw them in. One of us hung head and shoulders over the stern and bored the holes in the transom, while the other hung on to his legs to prevent him being washed or thrown overboard by the still highly unstable seas. This seemingly simple little job took an hour to accomplish. Most of the time the work lay underwater, and all the while the boat rolled and pitched wildly. When this part of the operation was complete, we turned our attention to the making of the rudder itself. We lifted up the bunk mattresses and took out the two forward locker hatches. These were about 33 inches long by 9 inches wide and were made of bonded plywood. We looked at these dubiously, for there seemed little hope of turning them into any resemblance of a rudder. We had nothing better, however, so we cast about for some other more solid length of timber to form the equivalent of a rudder post to which to fasten the locker boards. Beneath the great pile of gear at the fore end of the cabin, we knew there was a piece of pitch pine which Stanley's father had cut out to form a portable strut beneath the mast in case of exceptional stress manifesting itself here. He had not been quite happy about the mast on deck arrangement, and although we laughed a bit at the time, we blessed him now a dozen times for his anxiety. It takes a long time to dig down to it, but when it was brought up we saw some hope of success, for it was about three feet long by three inches wide by two inches thick. We then rummaged in the cockpit for some small blocks of wood we had on board for no particular reason, except that they might come in useful for something sometime. When all these odd pieces were assembled in the cockpit, we had to laugh, for they looked unlikely material for steering a boat hundreds of miles through fair and foul Atlantic weather. We set to work with a strong determination to rig up a rudder of some kind before darkness suspended operations. By the end of the afternoon, our hacking and banging had produced a peculiar assemblage of odds and ends to form a distressing yet somehow satisfactory parody of a rudder. We rigged it over the stern with various shackles and nails for pintles to go through the screw eyes. And then, lo and behold, when we got sail on the boat and trimmed them a little freer than usual to give us more speed, we were delighted and relieved 